Okay, so let's turn then to um, Jonah and chapter 2. Jonah and chapter 2. Um, it's a series that we've entitled Major Lessons Prophets or in the Minor Prophets. And what we noted is that these were individuals that were largely uh, testifying or uh, preaching to both uh, the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah um, prior to them being taken into captivity. And therefore, the major message you hear from them is that of uh, um, warning that if they don't turn away from their grievous sin of idolatry, that God's judgment was going to fall upon them. So we noticed that a number of them prophesied before, and therefore their messages were full of warnings. Another set of the um, minor prophets were prophesying during the captivity, both the Assyrian and Babylonian captivity, and then finally you have uh, another set that were prophesying after the captivity when they were restored back to the promised land. Um, we have so far looked at Hosea, we have looked at Joel, we have looked at Amos, and we have looked at Obadiah. Now we are looking at the prophet Jonah. And you will notice that by way of introduction, I mentioned the fact that Jonah is largely a narrative. In fact, today in chapter 2, we are looking at the only section that is in poetic form. The rest of it is in narrative form, which is different from all the way Hosea, Joel, Amos, and Obadiah. Although some sections might have a narrative, these were largely written in poetry. We also noticed that where they were in narratives before, it was written in first person. So the, the prophet would be saying, uh, here is the, the image that the Lord showed me, and then we'll talk about that image. Whereas in Jonah, we are literally watching Jonah. Somebody else is largely narrating for us, except where there is an actual quotation, then obviously, like any quotation, it is in the first person. What I forgot to add last time, which in a sense was the very lesson that we looked at, is that all the previous prophets are blameless. They are godly men that we looked at. Even when they are pushed to the extreme by God, like was uh, the case with um, Hosea about marrying a prostitute, uh, the, the, he, he, he still obeys the Lord. Can you imagine what uprightness can be in an individual like that? I'm sure most of us, that's the day would have gone to Tashish. <laughs> Yeah. Well, in Jonah's case, we are really dealing with uh, 
almost an equivalent to the Samson. You know, Samson was uh, a charismatic leader in Israel, uh, but a judge in that sense. But in the end, he was a complete disaster. But still, God used him to rescue the people of Israel. We learn a lot from Jonah, but we are not learning from somebody who, on the whole, is a good example. Already we have seen him running away from duty. Later on, we will see him in a kind of self-imposed depression because God is not fitting into what he wants by way of an agenda. He's sulking against God, and God finally just has to rebuke him out of his nonsensical attitude. But here he is. He is the prophet of the Lord. In fact, for today, I'm deliberately wanting to begin towards the end of the chapter because he makes a statement which is only made in one other place in the rest of the Bible. And it is the statement, salvation belongs to the Lord. End of verse 9. He begins there by saying, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. What a statement. What a statement. You, you can't get higher than that in terms of acknowledging the sovereignty of God, especially in the dispensation of his grace. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And basically what he is saying is that God is sovereign in who he saves and in how he saves. Ultimately, it is completely dependent upon his grace. He is not accountable to anybody. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Well, here's a testimony that is being brought from the stomach of a fish. That's where he is when his doctrinal position sort of experiences some soundness in the stomach of a fish. How does he get there? That's what I want us to see this afternoon. We are told at the beginning of chapter 2 that then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish saying. The point that is being made there is the fact that what we've already seen and we shall come back to in a moment is something that uh, was a disaster in in Jonah's life, but it was in the midst of that disaster, that life-threatening disaster, that this man prayed. When we read the prayer, the very first uh, verse of the prayer, which is verse 2, you will notice that he begins by, in a way that suggests that he obviously wrote this after he came out of 
the, the belly of the fish. However, the statement itself is written in such a way that it's fairly evident that the actual prayer was being made in those circumstances. Look at the way he puts it there. He says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Now, we know what the answer was. It's what we see in verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. And then he goes from that um, third person to now the first person. In other words, talking to the Lord directly. And here it is. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. The Lord was listening. In the midst of the belly of the fish, he uses the word Sheol because Sheol was understood as the place where the dead are. So in his mind, I was as good as dead. And he cried out to the Lord. In studying Jonah's cry, it soon becomes evident why he is able to testify that so salvation belongs to the Lord. How? Well, first of all, it is in appreciating the fact that what has happened to me is not human beings who have thrown me into the midst of the sea. Ultimately, it is God who has done this. Now, that's why I said we will look at this in a moment. But look at verse 3 before we, we go back to chapter 1. He says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Now, if we go to the account, which we were looking at last week, you will remember who it was that threw him into the sea. I'll deliberately begin from verse 11. Verse 11. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men were reluctant, as we saw last week. The men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord. Now it's the God of Jonah, the, the God of Israel. O oh Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they, notice, they, 
picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And yet, as Jonah prays, he says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. I think the point that we are learning from Jonah there is an all-important one. And it is this, that if we are going to be individuals who will acknowledge that salvation comes from the Lord, we have to be individuals who recognize that this God is also sovereign in all affairs of life. He's not sitting on one end of the chessboard and on the other side is the devil. And then every so often he's scratching when the devil makes a move. And so we have a situation now where the devil is the one who has thrown this man into this chaotic situation and then God is somehow trying to find a way to rescue. It is the realization that ultimately the whole of life is in the hands of God. That nothing ever happens to me without his bidding. Isn't this what helped Joseph not to be bitter towards his brothers? Because they're the ones who sold him into slavery. It was them. But when they now came trying to do some public relations, some damage control, and say, you know, your father said forgive and so on. He said to them, look, you did this out of evil motives. Yes. But you were not the only ones. God was involved. And God did this for a good purpose, the saving of many lives. So don't worry. I'm not going to do any harm to you. In fact, I will look after you. The ability to discern that if any individuals achieve something harmful to me, actually, my God has allowed it. He has allowed it. And it is for a purpose. And it is out of that that you then have a, a faith that is buoyant in the storm. In other words, as much as it is being pressed down by circumstances, it still somehow finds its way up again, which is what transpired in the life of Jonah. Back to our text. Look at the way he speaks in verse 4. Then I said, this is him basically reciting words in his prayer. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. I shall yet again look upon your holy temple. And obviously, in saying that, he's not saying I will do it in eternity. But he was really saying, I'll do it in the land of the living. Somehow, Lord, 
in the midst of all this, I am convinced that you are the God who answers prayer. And in this particular case, you are the God who forgives sin. That's really what it's about. You are the God who forgives sin. I've sinned against you. You are a forgiving God. You will restore me back to yourself. Because it's you who has brought me into these circumstances. This frowning providence that is upon me. Again, brethren, our need to, to look at frowning providence in the midst of our own disobedience and instead of just becoming bitter because God has used other people, it is to recognize that here is a forgiving God. Here is a restoring God. That's really what he wants to do with us, especially those of us who are God's children, to realize that, that God's punishment awaits in eternity. If we are saved, we are not going to be part of that. What we have now is chastisement. What we have now is restorative discipline on the part of God. Why? Because he wants to restore us to himself. He wants us to come back to his holy temple, as it were, back into fellowship with himself. Well, let's quickly go on because Jonah continues speaking to the Lord. And you can't miss the fact that his, his thought process is going closer and closer and closer to that final confession, salvation belongs to the Lord. And where he is now, he's basically saying that you alone are my Savior. Only you can save me from this situation. Verse 5 to verse 6. Verse 5 to verse 6. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. That's a hopeless situation, isn't it? Until he says, Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. The picture he has here is a completely hopeless situation. Obviously, it's not just I am in the depth of the waters, but it is also I am in the stomach of a fish. It's gone. The next thing I expect is to black out, and that's it. In other words, if I ever see the light of day, it's not my doing. It's not. 
This is not a person who is saying, well, thank God I carried a pen knife in my pocket. Let me now get it out and, and slit the stomach of this fish out so that I can somehow save myself. MacGyver type. He knew I'm gone. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. You can see something of this being written after this event of being uh, vomited out of the stomach of this huge fish. But the point nonetheless is this acknowledgement that you, O oh Lord, and you alone can make the difference. It's not me. It's easily applicable when we are thinking in terms of the salvation of a sinner. Our three friends who were testifying here a few moments ago and the ones who testified in the morning, the message was clear. It's always, I come to the end of myself. There's nothing that I can do. I simply cried to the Lord that day and he saved me. That's the way we all get saved. And in that sense, we can say salvation belongs to the Lord. But brethren, even those of us who are already believers and we have taken the route of disobedience, stubborn disobedience, and the Lord has begun to tighten the screws over our lives through frowning providences. Even us, we need in that midst, first of all, in fact, not we need, but we often try to change the circumstances ourselves and fail miserably because the Lord wants to show us that ultimately he is in charge, he is sovereign over our lives, he can actually keep us there, he alone has the capacity to pull us out. In other words, we too, even then, should be able to come to the Lord and say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. I've been disobedient, I've gone the wrong way, I've done things I shouldn't have done. This is where my life has ended up. Lord, please, I am utterly and completely at your mercy. You alone are my savior. Thankfully, that's exactly what Jonah went on to do. Jonah prayed. Jonah prayed. Verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Finally, 
This is the point at which he prayed. What I want us to do before we appreciate the details of that is to notice the movement. To notice the movement that finally brings Jonah to the point of prayer. Yes, he prayed. He said it at the very beginning, verse 1, rather verse 2, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. He's talked about it, but that's the summary of everything. Now, as we are journeying, notice, first of all, he sees God's hand in the details of his life. And in seeing God's hand in the details of his life, his own faith in God remains. It is not shattered. It is still there. And even when he realizes that he's completely helpless, he's as good as dead. It is the Lord in whom he trusts. The Lord alone that he is the one who will finally bring me out of this. And because of that, he I wonder whether that represents you, that theological background, that realization of all this from a biblical perspective. Sadly, one reason why we don't pray, as Jonah prayed, in the midst of God's corrective discipline, is because we have a, a godless, an atheistic view of nature and circumstances around us. Yes, we believe that the Lord saves us from sin through the death of Christ and we'll somehow find ourselves in heaven, but we, we, we fail to see this ever-present God who is dealing with us in the daily circumstances of our lives. And so, because to us, it is other people who are bad, or just this weather or climate or some accident that just happens, just an accident, we fail to see that is God reaching out to me, and therefore I should go to him and cry to him. So although we are believers, we become practical atheists in the midst of those real trials of our lives. It was not so with Jonah. He recognized this is God. Although there were human beings that threw me into the waters, but it's God. And he alone has the power to reverse this. Therefore, Lord, I come to you. He prayed. He prayed. Many years ago, <clears throat> I visited a lady who had been going through a very difficult situation for a very long time. She wasn't a member of this church. I knew her from her childhood days, but I got to know now where she was living. 
and I've not forgotten going there, <coughs> uh, some government flats, and uh, listening to what she was going through, listening to what she was going through. And um, when she finished, my immediate response as I was about to leave was, uh, let me pray for you. She was hesitant, very hesitant. And uh, I still persisted. Finally, she says, okay, since we're a pastor, you pray. So I prayed. Then when I finished, she began to look around and said, these walls must be quite surprised because prayer has not been offered in this building for a very long time. In other words, going through all the trials and difficulties and so on, instead of crying out to the Lord, it was an attitude of, if God, this is the kind of life that I'm going to go through, forget it. And so, prayer ceased. Could that be true of you? That even when you go for a church prayer meeting and people are asking for prayer requests, that area of your life is not one of the prayer requests we offer. You've just shut it out. You've, you've closed your eyes there. In a sense, you are bitter towards other people and you don't want to think about it. That one, you are handling yourself against them. It is not a matter for prayer. Well, for Jonah, he went to the Lord. When my life was fainting away, before I blacked out, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. I love verse 8 because in verse 8, he is making the statement that actually there's only one Savior and it's the Lord himself. That every other being that human beings depend on are not just idols, they are useless idols. But here is the other reason why I love this verse. He basically says that people who go that way actually forsake their only hope from a God who alone truly loves. Listen to this, verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. They don't realize this. That by crying out to the figments of their own imagination, maybe their own abilities, but obviously in this particular case, it was actual images that had been formed and put in all kinds of temples. And people were bowing down to them. The fruit of their own labors. They've carved out an image. And they're now saying to that image, save us, save us. Something they have made. He's saying the disaster about it, first of all, is that it is vain. It's useless. 
those things cannot save them. But number two, in holding that with both hands, they've missed out on holding on to God with both hands. That's basically what has happened. They forsake their hope of steadfast love. Let's put it another way. It's this. That the God in whom we have come to believe is not just a sovereign over the universe. He's a God who has marked us out that is going to love us with an everlasting love. A love that never changes. It never does. Oh, then, how do you explain the suffering that I am going through? How do you explain Jonah in the belly of a fish? Well, here's the answer. Because of his steadfast love. Ask any parent who disciplines his child, and that parent will tell you that it is because I love my son. It's because I love my daughter. That's the reason why. Yes, I could see my child crying, weeping his whole heart out. I could see my child is in pain. But it was the way to extract that poison called sin from the child's life. That's the reason why. It is out of love. So it's the same with us as well. Friends, when God takes us through what Jonah went through because of his disobedience and because of our own disobedience, you can be sure it is an act of love that makes him do so. He wants us back into a path of obedience. He wants us back into the holy temple. That's the reason why. We are loved with an everlasting love. May that melt our stony hearts in the midst of our bitter cry to God. We are loved with an everlasting love. That love will never be taken away from us. And so finally, having acknowledged that, does it surprise you that Jonah should speak thus, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. In other words, there's only one response finally that I can give out of all this, and it is that of gratitude. Gratitude. That you've brought me into such a relationship 
that even in a belly, the belly of a fish in the depths of the sea, there can still be hope for me. Who survives such circumstances? Who? And the only reason why is because you've loved me with an everlasting life. Your purpose for me has not been blown into splinters because of my disobedience. There may have been a delay, a detour, but you are taking me to the desired conclusion. And therefore, I will praise you. I will praise you. I will praise you. And hence the statement. Now it makes sense. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's the acknowledgement. It belongs to you, O Lord. Having said that, verse 10 concludes the chapter. Deliverance has come at last. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry Let's suppose you were Jonah on that day. And you are on dry land. I think you'd have learned your lesson pretty well. You won't be thinking about Tashish for quite some time to come. Because you know this God has capacity has capacity. He can do anything. He can destroy you. He can restore you. Salvation belongs to the Lord. I wonder, is this your view of salvation? That the reason why you are what you are is not because of any kind of contribution on your part. Salvation absolutely completely, sovereignly belongs to the Lord. If he wanted, he would have let Jonah drown. If he wanted, he would have let Jonah get destroyed in the stomach of that fish or in its mouth. Not too sure whether he had reached the stomach. Maybe it was still just in the mouth. He could have easily allowed all that. And many other people had drowned. Many other people had died that way. But he's sovereign. And in his electing love, he chose this person to come out. He has chosen you. And that's why you are what you are today. Is that your view? What about your view of frowning providence. Are you spiritually sensitive enough to look at those difficulties in your life, especially those that are beyond your capacity in any way to address? Do you pass them through the meal of your spiritual walk with the Lord? 
Or do you totally divorce those things from yourself? I've used this illustration before, but it, it has come to mind again today of uh, a friend of mine. Uh, he's actually now even an elder of one of our sister churches. But when he was at Unza, in my own days, uh, he, he, he bought some clothes using his tithe. Was very guilty about it, but he hardened his heart. And then, after he did his first washing and put them on the line, yes, when he came to get them off, they were gone. <laughs> and I've never forgotten his testimony. His testimony was this uh, the Lord came to get what was his. <laughs> <laughs> the Lord came and got what really belonged to him. It was a bit of a roundabout way. I should have just given it to him directly, but he came for it. All I want to say is don't waste frowning providences. The difficulties especially those that are utterly beyond you. Don't waste them. It's C.H. Spurgeon who speaks of such difficult times as waves that throw me against the rock of ages. What a picture. What a picture. They hit against my little life, throw my life out of control, and I hit myself against the rock of ages. And he says, I bless those waves. They've taken me in the right direction. Don't waste frowning providences. Let them drive you to prayer. Let them drive you to the Lord. Let them leave you in his hands. Let them leave you crying out, salvation belongs to the Lord. That's why I've cried out to him. I've testified to this, that he is sovereign in his dispensation of his grace, of his salvation. And I am a recipient of this. I was at the point of my conversion, I continue to be dependent upon him. It was the hymn writer, the hymn we'll be singing, who said, uh, I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more, until the master of the sea Heard my despairing cry, and from the waters lifted me, thus safe am I. That should be our testimony. Love has lifted me. Love, steadfast love, has lifted me. When nothing or no one could help, it was eternal love 
that has cast me upon dry land. Amen.